Great to see everybody this morning. If you have your Bible or your phone or however you want to follow along if you, if you want, is, uh, we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. So in the New Testament, Gospel of Mark, starting in chapter 11, we're going to go through uh, the middle 14 verses today. And, uh, and uh, if you're on your phone or, or whatever, I mean, the NIV, if that matters to you, if, just to follow along. Uh, so um, just a quick announcement before we jump into it, just as a, just a reminder, another kind of last minute uh, announcement is if you're in the, typically in the middle school or high school group, sorry, high school, high schoolers, grades uh, 9 through 12, we will not be having high school group this afternoon. We'll, we'll pick back up for the uh, last few weeks in, in January. So just a heads up there, middle schoolers, don't worry, we're still going to party this afternoon for my middle schoolers. The switches are hot, all right, the Nintendo Switch and Subway and pizza. Surprise, throwing in some pizza today. So for everybody else who's not in middle school, Mark chapter 11, Mark chapter 11. Uh, let, me, let me read, we're going to read verses uh, 12 through 26, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump in. So uh, Mark chapter 11, picking up in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. So seeing in the distance a, f- a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Verse 15, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they heard this, and they began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the root, And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the the fig tree that you cursed has withered. Verse 22, have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their hearts, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything Against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for your grace and goodness. And as we uh, read your word, as we learn from your word, as we sing your word, as we pray your word, work in our hearts today so that we leave more uh, in trusting you and more in love with you than when we came in this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So last week, uh, the first bit of Mark chapter 11, we saw Jesus, uh, he came into the temple and he, and he looked around, okay, which is, which is just heavy with uh, prophetic thought. You know, Malachi said John the Baptist was going to be the one, the messenger to go before and prepare the way of the Lord. And then right after those verses in Malachi 3, it says that God's chosen one would come into the temple unlooked for. So as Jesus came into the temple the, the night before, looked around and then left to Bethany. He comes back into the temple today. And we saw that, that from last week he was welcomed into Jerusalem, you know, and there's, you know, the, the, 
people were you know, singing songs, Hosanna, save us, and we, and we saw how Jesus kind of confronted some of their uh, disordered desires. And we talked last week about how our strongest desire and our deepest desire aren't always the same thing, and sometimes they, they clash. So we see Jesus now, he's finally, as the Messiah, the chosen one, the Christ, he's coming into the temple to continue his work. And what he does on the way, he does something that we can find kind of odd, because when he curses the fig tree, that's the last miracle Jesus performs before he's arrested and killed. Pretty interesting that this is, like, this is the way Jesus would choose. Like All of the incredible things Jesus had done, he'd healed people, people that were blind and could now see. He'd raised Lazarus from the dead. He'd, he, the little girl, uh, 12-year-old girl, he'd raised her back from the dead. He healed, I mean, all kinds of incredible things. He broke loaves and fishes and multiplied them to feed thousands of people. And then he curses a fig tree. Right? And it can seem kind of odd. Like it's easy for us to kind of kind of read here, like, okay, Jesus, like we know he's hungry, right? And we've all kind of done things we regret when we're hungry, right? Anybody hangry? Like the Snickers commercials, right? Like shows a diva and then they get I love those commercials. Those are those are fun. Like is you know, like is this his true colors? Like is is like the stress getting to him? Is the pressure getting to him? Like he comes, like he clearly knew the tree wasn't in season, right? Like it says, like he came, the, the, the fig was in leaves, but he found nothing there because it wasn't the season. Like it wasn't like someone who grew up in that culture, that very agrarian culture, would have, would have seen the, the fig and thought, oh, it's like maybe there are, leave, there, maybe there are figs on it, you know, out of season completely. Like, like none, of us, none of us are walking out to an apple tree right now expecting to find an apple, right? Or blueberry bushes. None of us are doing it because we know it's not the season. So like what, like is Jesus, is he just kind of mean like, does he have an anger problem? Like, like what are we seeing here? Like, when he comes and he, and he curses, when, the word curse, it's not like a magic incantation. It's, it's like, like, no, like, almost like a no-duh moment. Like, of course, when God says something, it happens, right? Like, like, Jesus said that. But the disciples, seeing this, they wouldn't have been amazed or upset that Jesus did this. Because for them, what astounded them, the teaching, would have been something a, a, a little bit different for them. Because if you notice, like as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, Mark likes to kind of bookend stories or sections that he's trying to prove a point, right? Like remember, we just got done at the end of chapter 10 where Jesus heals another blind man. And he kind of started that whole thing of his miracles in chapter 7. So, so a literary device that Mark uses is to kind of bookend stories to carry on one continual theme. And so what we see today is, is that Jesus gives us an anatomy of the fruitless, an anatomy of the fruitless. That's what we're going to look at. Because when Jesus walked up the fig tree, it was in full leaf and it had no fruit. So then fast, you know, fast forward just a few verses and Jesus walks into the temple that's bustling with activity, right? The fig, the fig tree had leaves, but there was no fruit on it. In the same way Jesus, he walked up to the temple, there's a ton of activity going, a lot of spiritual and religious activity. There's a sacrificial system happening. There's economy going on. At that point, the temple in Jerusalem was kind of the like, major marketplace, kind of all, all things in the life of an Israelite would flow through the temple in Jerusalem. So there's, it's bustling. And what Jesus was accusing them of, kind of the first, the first anatomy of, of the fruitless, he's accusing them of religious activity with no spiritual vibrancy. Man, what a warning for us, right? Jesus enters the temple courts and he wasn't angry. Like a lot of times this can be taught as he's angry because there's like, there's like buying and selling going on in the temple courts. And that's not really the case because, you know, 
And we can read this and we can think that he was just trying to cleanse the temple of like there's like crooked business going on and things like that. But all that going on was, was very normal practice. It was even encouraged because people who were traveling in for Passover, I mean, you think they're traveling hundreds of miles on feet. You know, a lot of times they couldn't afford an animal to bring with them, much less risk at dying traveling you know, through basically desert wasteland for hundreds of miles. So, so there would be people set up on the, on the courts of the temple so that they could buy, it says doves specifically, uh, because that was a thing you could buy so that you could make atonement for your sins, give it to the priest, and they would offer it to God. So what Jesus was doing is that, that he wasn't really angry about that, and, and we're not really sure if he's angry about anything, because when you look at the quote in Jeremiah where it says that you're den of robbers, okay, so that's in Jeremiah chapter 7. So hundreds of years before Jesus comes, Jeremiah stands in the temple, on the, the steps of the temple, and you can look at the first 15 verses of Jeremiah 7, and he basically accuses them, like the paraphrased version of, is like, hey, how, how dare you do this? You come into the temple, the place where you think you're close to the presence of God and you pretend like everything's okay, but as soon as you leave, you oppress the poor, you don't take care of widows and orphans, and you hate people that aren't like you. He says, how dare you think that when you come inside the walls of the temple that you're somehow safe even though you've been treating people like dirt on the outside? Even though you, you act like you're faithful here, but when you're out in your everyday life, you're nothing like a covenant person of God's family. You're not going to like it at all. And he reminds them, he says, because if you think about like den of robbers, right? Like the den of robbers wasn't where the bad stuff would happen. If you think about that image, like the robbers would go out of their den, they would do the misdeeds, right? And then they'd come back in their safety and enjoy the spoils. That's what Jeremiah was accusing them of in chapter 7. And so when Jesus comes up and he says, you know, you, you, my, my house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. He's reminding them, hey, you, you were called. God chose his people. Right? Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, I didn't choose you because you were a people of great wealth or, or a people that were like large in number or had great military like prowess. He said, I actually chose you. He said, you were really few in number. You were kind of lame. He said, I chose you because I loved you, and I'm choosing you so that you can be a blessing and carry my blessing to the rest of the world. So when Jesus says, hey, my house, my father's house is supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations, he's saying, hey, we're supposed to take what we get here in the temple, which is worshiping God, atonement for our sins, receiving the grace of God for the brokenness of the world, and my presence, and we're supposed to take that out, but instead, you come into the temple courts, and there's all this religious activity going on, but there's no spiritual vibrancy. Because spiritual vibrancy, Paul puts it later in 1 Corinthians when he talks about those who have placed their faith in Jesus becoming the living temple of God. He talks about it being the aroma of Christ. Meaning like you'd go into the temple courts, and you would smell the sacrifices for, for sins of the animals going on. He said, but now God's presence dwells in us. And we're supposed to be the aroma of Christ, ambassadors for Christ. And man, just for us, I mean, for me, this week, preparing, it's like, you know, we know the words of Jesus where he says, you know, we're, like, they will know us by, the, by our fruit, right? And Jesus said in John 15, if you abide in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. And he actually says, apart from me, you can't bear fruit. And so just take an inventory of my life the areas where I would say there's, there's less fruit or maybe no fruit. 
you just ask yourself the question, looking at the anatomy here of the fruitless, is there more religious activity without spiritual vibrancy going on? See, doing things for Jesus and being with Jesus are two different things. And it's really easy to do things for Jesus or in the name of Jesus more than being with Jesus. Because going back to John 15, Jesus said, he, he said, if you abide in me apart from me, you can do nothing. So if you're wondering, just, just, just in our own lives, man, like, why, why can't I see God's activity and presence and power in my life kind of break through? I would just ask, do you find yourself, and maybe even take inventory, maybe sit down this evening with a piece of paper, where are the areas in your life you feel like you're, you're running against the wall constantly? And just ask yourself the question, are you trying to do for Jesus more than you're trying to be with Jesus, Right? In, in Matthew, Jesus said that a lot of people are going to come up to him on the last day and say, hey, didn't we do really good stuff in your name? Like we cast out demons, we prophesied, we did all these things. Like, didn't we do, and what did Jesus say? And the response Jesus said is, I never knew you. See, that word know, we're going to come back to it again in a minute. In Greek, there are two words for know. There's like the head knowledge know, and there's the experiential relational knowledge know. And the word that Jesus uses there is the, the experiential relational knowledge of no. Right? Like if I stood up here and I was like, guys, I'm very excited about Thanksgiving. Uh, this week, you know, so we're going to have some days off. We're going to drop the kids off with uh, my, my parents. And, and I'm going to take my wife on a date. And I just can't wait to sit across the table and see my wife with her beautiful jet black hair and her brown eyes. And I just think she's beautiful. Right? Any of you who know my wife would say, Matt, you're either colorblind or crazy uh, because your wife has blonde hair and blue eyes. Right? Like it's one thing if in my mind if I know something, but when I sit down and I, and I have that experiential knowledge, or if you have it with her, you can say, no, 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 no. I, like I've talked to Anna and I've seen her, right? Like it's two totally different knowledges going on. See, relational knowledge with Jesus is what he's after. God said in Hosea, and Jesus repeated the words, he said, hey, go look up what this means. I require mercy and not sacrifice. See, there's a lot of sacrifice going on in the temple right here. There's a lot of religious activity. There wasn't a lot of mercy. See, a life faithful to Jesus and a life a part of the Jesus life is a life that's full of words and works of mercy where we take the good news of Jesus and the words of his grace and his peace and his freedom and, and it pairs alongside the works of mercy where we see and do justice in our communities, in our neighborhoods, in the towns around us and that's a life of what God requires, a life of mercy and not just sacrifice, of spiritual vibrancy instead of just religious activity. I love Robert Mulholland in his book, Invitation to a Journey. He describes spiritual formation as the, the act of a human becoming more like Jesus for the good of other people. See, if, a, if, if our spiritual life is only vertical between us and God, and it's not for the good of the people around us, then spiritual vibrancy is there. And it's part of the anatomy of the fruitless because spiritual vibrancy produces the fruit in those around us as well. So the second thing, we, we see it wasn't just spiritual activity that was keeping people from spiritual vibrancy, but it was behavior modification without real repentance. Behavior modification without real repentance. Jesus came with that message from Hosea, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. The sacrificial system, 
in the temple. It was supposed to be where the presence of God, like if you think about all the stories in the Old Testament, right, where, where Moses goes into the, the tent of meeting and he sacrifices and God's, God's presence comes down in a cloud during the day and fire by night. And the people experience that. And in the temple, in, in the, there were different courts and only you know, certain people could get to the very center of the Holy of Holies. Once a year, the high priest if, you, if this rings a bell, pretty soon we'll be talking about it a little more with Christmas time, right? Zechariah and John the Baptist and all that. We'll be reading those stories soon coming up. Um, just one time a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies in the presence of God. So that sacrificial system was supposed to be where heaven and earth connected in the temple and God's presence dwelt on earth with his people. But by this time, in the time of Jesus, when he comes into the temple, the sacrificial system had been turned into basically an indistinguishable religious practice that was not that different from the nations and religions around them to the point where it was safer in the eyes of the Roman government to let them do their religious work because they knew there wasn't any real power in it. See, they had behavior modification but out without real repentance. There had been so much compromise morally and socially, that it was better that someone live the outward appearance of a religious, upright person because there was no threat of them wielding the presence and power of God in their lives. See, their, their behavior was good, but they had no real spiritual authority or power because they had not given themselves to true repentance. See, true repentance is, is where in our lives we recognize that without God, Without Jesus, like said in John 15, that we can do nothing. So repentance is agreeing with God. That's what that means. So a lot of times we just like old school, like Debner and Mike check. I hope you don't mind me sharing this. As a joke, she stood up with the mic and, and said, you know, hey, turn or burn. It's a joke. Because like we all have images when we hear the word repent. We probably immediately go to like the street preachers, like somewhere downtown that are holding up signs. And you're like, come on, dude. You know what I'm saying? Like. You know, talk about religious activity with no spiritual vibrancy, right? Because repentance in itself means it's a, it's a continual act for everyone where you are constantly learning to agree with God and you're coming to him with open hands and open hearts saying, God, I believe you are the creator and sustainer of the universe and you speak to us and live in our hearts with grace and love and mercy and Jesus, you came to set people free and to heal brokenness and restore the earth to goodness. And so I'm, I'm sorry for when I've not agreed with you and I'm agreeing with you. See, Matthew chapter three, when John the Baptist came onto the scene, John the Baptist is just so wild. All right, so let's just take a second and, and just recognize the reality of us sitting in here today with, with clothes on and shoes on and it's cold outside and the guy who welcomed Jesus' ministry into the world was a dude wearing camel skin and ate locust and honey. All right, locust and honey on anyone's Thanksgiving dinner menu this week. All right, so, so dude is in the desert wearing camel skin, which sounds really hot, okay? And, and he's in the water, he's baptizing people. And then the Pharisees and religious leaders that maybe, I don't know, I don't want to speculate too much, but good chance that if they're coming out to check out John the Baptist and his movement, they're probably confronting Jesus in the temple as well because these are the guys who are making sure nothing bad's happening and that no, no heresy's being taught. 
So here comes some guys out of the wilderness to talk to John the Baptist and make sure what he's doing is legit. And he calls them a brood of vipers. Okay? He, and he says, he says, listen, he says, he, he warns them, he says, hey, you, you guys are always constantly worried about truth, but you're not worried about the heart. And then he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Okay, so what he does is he challenges them. He says, hey, hey, the way you produce fruit is that you, agree, you learn to agree with God whether you like it or not. Right? And that's kind of a message for us, repentance. Just because we feel something doesn't make it true. Or just because sometimes we think something doesn't make it true either. You know this to be, like, in extreme cases true if you, like myself, live in a house with two toddlers. Right? Like, if everything we said were true this week that we felt in the moment, like, we no longer would be family. We would all be some form of, like, a cat-human mutant, right, that, like, crawls around on the floor a lot. Uh, We would love each other uncontrollably, and we'd have to snuggle all the time, but at the same time, we'd have to be in different rooms because we don't love each other, right? Like, if we acted and, and if what we felt in the moment all the time was completely true, then like we'd all be in tons of trouble. But when John says bear fruit in keeping with repentance, the grounding is that we come back and we say, God, I'm agreeing with you despite myself, despite my wants and desires, because I'm going to trust, whether I fully believe it or not, I'm going to trust that you know better for me than I know for myself. And that's how we produce fruit. Because look what John kept going in Matthew 3. He said, and don't think that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. He says, so whatever you, don't, don't fall back. Don't fall back on, the, on, the, on your religious pedigree. Don't, don't, don't try. I mean, and this is me. As a, I'm, a, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor's son. I've, I'm in a family of pastors. And dude, don't, don't, don't try to put up that, that, that face. Because look what he says. He says, I tell you that out of these stones, God could raise up children for Abraham. And, and John gives a really prophetic message here that Jesus is carrying out in Mark 11. He says, but the acts is already at the root of the trees. And every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into fire. This is not a message that we get to shout at people to condemn them. This is a message that we as followers of God get to ask ourselves, are we, are we living a fruitful life, bearing fruit for God, or is he finding just behavior modification where we say, I'm doing the right stuff, I'm doing the right thing, I'm trying the hardest, when he's just saying, I want you to be with me. I want you to bear fruit in keeping with repentance by agreeing with me. So just like they returned to the fruit in the story we read today, to the tree, and it was dead from the root up, Jesus was showing them that it was time for the temple and the sacrificial system to go away. That he was establishing a new order. See, the way of God has always been through faith, and now it was time like Paul wrote about this later in Galatians 4, that anyone who had faith in God would become God's temple. Because Jesus, his sacrifice on the cross, was good enough once and for all to all sin, so therefore there's no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus. See, Jesus wasn't trying to come and reform the temple or kind of end some kind of bad practices or gambling or marketplace going on. In the temple, he was preparing them to do a brand new thing. Just like in Jeremiah chapter 19, right? Jesus is is fulfilling the role of a prophet here. Where Jeremiah stands up in Jeremiah 19 and he's holding the the, the pot that he got from the potter's house. And he shatters it in front of everyone. And he says, hey, because of 
all the busyness, all the religious activity with no real fruit and no real repentance and no real spiritual vitality. This is Jeremiah. He said, the temple's going to shatter and be broken apart. And you're going to be spread out. And the next thing we know, Babylon comes in and does just that. And now Jesus is standing in front of the temple and he stops all religion, he stops all the activity. Right? Like what kind of, if he's supposed to be a good prophet, why in the world would he stop? The people were amazed and astounded because he stopped sacrifice from going on the week of Passover. He stopped it. And he stood there and he's telling them, and he's trying to get them to understand with like really vivid illustration that, that I'm beginning a new work and I'm preparing to do something new. See, Jesus isn't just interested in like coming in and changing some of our behavior. His goal is to make us a totally new creation in his image. His plan for us is to be transformed into his image by his spirit so that we can be ambassadors for Christ. So that's what Jesus was trying to get those hearing his words and seeing his actions to understand. So we saw the anatomy of the fruitless. Let's look at these last few verses in this passage and let's look at the anatomy of the fruitful, okay? Who's ready for some positive stuff? All right, let's go. Verse 22, here you go. Ready? It's pretty simple. Here's the anatomy of the fruitful. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Faith in God is the starting point for a life of salvation and experiencing all that Jesus mentions in these following verses. See, Jesus is establishing a new, a new order of creation, of salvation, of way to God by reminding them to have faith in God. See, faith in God is where we, we begin as humans, the, these humans that live and experience a broken world. It's where we go to that time that, that's already been fulfilled by Jesus coming but not yet completely fulfilled by his return. See, a new order that's, Jesus established a new order that's based on faith in God that overcomes insurmountable odds, is sustained by grace, and characterized by forgiveness. See, this, and this is why, because if you ask, like, how, how does all this come together? This is why, like, coming up, talking about, you know, we're, we're kicking off Advent next week, and, and we celebrate the coming of Jesus to earth, and this is why the doctrine that, that we believe as Christians of the incarnation is so important, okay? I'm going to try to get into this without getting too Bible nerd on us, but whatever, we're already here. There's nothing you can do about it. I have the mic, and I'm running sound today, so more powerful than I've ever been in my whole life. <laughs> so, this, so the incarnation, here's why it's important. See, because you, you wonder, like, how, how, like, okay, this seems like a stretch, Matt. Like, Jesus coming, stopping the temple, new order. Like, how, like how is it possible for us to become a new creation. Like if you've ever wondered, like us as human beings, like how is it possible for us to be transformed into the image of Christ and experience a life of salvation? In John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. Okay, so eternal life isn't something that just happens once we die. Like once we die, that's not when the good stuff starts. Like we can experience eternal life here now on earth. John 17, Jesus said, and this is eternal life that you know, that experiential know again, okay? That, that's experiential, relational know. Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and Jesus, the Messiah whom he sent. All right, that word, 
That, that is the incarnation. See, to have faith in God is to have faith in Jesus. They can't be exclusive from one another. And see, Jesus, when he came to earth, Jesus had to be fully God in order to transcend our hopeless condition and save us from our ultimate enemy, sin and death. We've never been able to conquer those things on our own terms, by our own power. Humans have never been able to conquer those two things. So Jesus, coming to earth as fully God and fully human, he's able to do what he did in Mark and and set a new order not based on sacrifice because he was God. He was God. And at the same time, while he had to be God, to transcend our hopeless state. He had to be fully human to create the right conditions for a redemption like this to take place. See, it's from inside of the broken condition of humans, or or what, what maybe I should say, from inside this broken condition that we call the human experience that God entered in and changed everything. See, when, when we place our faith in Jesus, we experience his recreating power, or as Paul puts it, the same resurrection power that raised him from the dead. See, his spirit that raised Jesus from the dead comes and lives in us. See, that's why when we profess that God is love, we know it to be true because he chased us down to the point of overtaking us. In Philippians 2, Paul said that that Jesus, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he humbled himself taking on the form of a servant, even to the point of becoming a human and dying on the cross for our sins. See, it had to be that way so that he could come into our broken state and and overtake us. So if you're sitting here today and and you say, yes, I, I have faith in Jesus as my Lord and Savior, just know that's because God has loved us so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for us. That's what Paul said in, in Romans 5. Think about John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever might believe in him won't die, but have eternal life. See, when we talk about Jesus coming, when we're reading these stories, Jesus wasn't just a person, he, he was fulfilling the role of a prophet by declaring the, the, the coming destruction of the temple that came true in AD 70. But, but that was just a part of his ministry. Jesus was actually God in flesh that came to make what we pray in the Lord's Prayer for his will, for his kingdom come and his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus bridged that gap by becoming us, dying for us, overtaking our brokenness with his goodness and his love and his grace. In Acts chapter 5, Peter He's preaching back to the people that had just killed Jesus, the religious leaders. And he said that they hung Jesus on a tree. See, the one who in this story cursed a tree to illustrate the destruction of the temple would be cursed while hanging on a tree to save us from destruction and make us his temple here on earth. See, his incarnation is exactly why we must have faith in him And it's how we make sense of his flow of thought here, right? Like, it's easy for us to kind of generalize the idea of like, you know, oh, it's like you can do cool stuff if you pray. And it talks about like casting a mountain in, you know, into the sea and all that stuff. But but if you look at his words here, it's a little more specific than that, right? Because what he says is, is that he says, if I tell you, like they just left the temple and he says, I tell you, if you tell this mountain to jump into the sea, it'll do it. 
See, see, in a world of, of like religious pluralism in the, in the Roman Empire and, and Greek mythology, Roman mythology all coming together where there were temples on top of every hill trying to get as close to the gods as possible, Jesus tells his believers, hey, if you tell this mountain, the one that, that had been prophesied and proclaimed throughout all the New Testament, Mount Zion, where God's temple would dwell, he said, if you tell this mountain to jump into the sea, it'll do it. They were still holding on to the hope that their, their political and religious power would continue on like it had in the kingdom of David and Solomon. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. I'm telling you guys, this temple. Because what, what that would do is that would be the place where, where, where God had kind of been thought to just be geographically boxed in to a room inside of this temple, inside of these courts on top of this hill. And Jesus, what happened when he died? Anybody know the story from Easter, right? He dies, and what happens to the curtain in the temple that kept God's presence there? It tore from top to bottom. It was symbolizing God was showing us that he had made the way from heaven to earth for his presence to no longer be confined, but to go out into the whole world and bless everyone. See, God's presence can't be defined to a space and when we place our faith in Jesus and we believe that we are asking to receive his presence in ourselves, it will be ours. Just like Jesus said, if you pray that this specific mountain get cast into the sea, that means it would release God's presence in the whole world. And that's what we get to believe. See, Paul, Paul makes it clear, so, that, so then it goes from to, to a, a life of faith as one marked by forgiveness. I'm gonna turn, it's gonna be a few verses in 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. So, so Paul's kind of talking about this idea, the idea that God's spirit and his presence is dwelling inside of humans. And if you still live in, the, in, in, in you're like me, like, like I went for a hike yesterday and it hurt worse than it ever has. Like people were like, like I hit 30 this year. Okay, so some of you guys are gonna snicker about that. But I feel like it's true. Like, all, like so far, every time you hit a decade and like they're like, oh, you're not getting any younger. It's like, you're yeah, right, you know? Anyways, uh, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 4. So Paul's kind of talking about this like experience that we have as humans where, where we have the spirit of God in us, but we still live in a world that's broken and hurting and, and we experience pain. Verse seven, he said, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We're hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed, perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not abandoned, struck down, but not destroyed. Some of us, that's our... That could be a good memory verse for holidays coming up. We always carry, verse 10, listen to what Paul said. He said, we always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then, death is at work at us, but in life in you. Because it's written, I believed Therefore, I have spoken. Since we have that same spirit of faith, we also believe and therefore speak because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will also raise us with Jesus and present us to you to himself. All this is for your benefit so that the grace that is reaching more and more people may cause thanksgiving to overflow to the glory of God. So how do we live a part of this life, this resurrection life that's marked by grace and forgiveness? The way that we do it is by reciprocating the same grace that Jesus has shown us. 
That, that's what Jesus said there, right? And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. See, a fruitful life is a fruit that's marked by forgiveness. Because how in the world can we, as Christians, say that we carry around the death and the life of Jesus and experience the forgiveness that he gives us if we're keeping fruit and if we're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance where we're asking God for forgiveness and yet refuse to extend forgiveness to the people around us. See, Paul goes on at the beginning of 2 Corinthians 6, he says, I urge you, therefore, not to receive the grace of God in vain. Because what he says is, we've been made a new creation, we're ambassadors for Christ. The way that we receive the grace of God in vain is to refuse to extend that grace to other people. Because we were made to become like Jesus for the good of other people. A fruitful life is a life of faith in prayer so that we can continually expect God to do amazing things as we invite others into faith and grace in Jesus. See, faith is not, only, it's not just the mark of the fruitful, it's the beginning and the foundation of it. It's the driving force behind prayer. If prayer is the vehicle that takes us to God to talk to him and hear from him, faith is the road that's paved for us to get there. So we were saying, Matt, like, I hear you. I I just don't feel confident praying. I don't feel like I can pray. I've not done it forever, and I feel like if I show up and try to pray, God's just going to kind of shake his head and say, like, well, where have you been? Good to hear from you. But no, God is a good father who goes out to meet the prodigal son on the road and gives him his robe and his ring and he kisses him and he says, welcome home. I've been waiting for you. So I just encourage you to practice this life of faith and, and, and fruitfulness and prayer and repentance. Don't focus on how you can't pray. Just focus on how you can pray. Pray how you can, not as you can. And live this life of prayer. And what we're going to do uh, in just a minute, you guys have probably noticed a big, big bathtub over here, hot tub. Uh, we're we're going to be celebrating what we just talked about with a niece in a little bit. See, what a, a niece is doing today when we baptize is he's proclaiming his faith in Jesus. He's saying that he identifies with and pledges his allegiance to Jesus as a Savior and as Lord. See, we believe that just as Jesus conquered sin and death by dying to pay the penalty for our sin and then being raised from the dead and conquering death, baptism is that symbol of what Anissa is saying he believes has happened in his heart that Jesus has done for him, that he's died to sin, that he's raised to walk in newness of life in the name of Jesus. And so I'd like to just kind of open up. We have the water here. Um, We've heard the good news of Jesus, that he came to save us, to die in our place, to restore us and make us new. And so I just um, just encourage us in a minute uh, as I pray just to do business with God right where you are. I mean, may, maybe you're here and you, you've been a Jesus follower and you've placed your faith in Jesus, but you found yourself kind of that anatomy of the fruitless. No real spiritual vibrancy, no real true repentance. Let me just say, once again, G- God is not to condemn you. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians says, but he has not destined us for wrath. Jesus already paid all that on the cross. There's no need for, for you to pay for it as well. So when you place your faith in Jesus, let me just say, man, ask God to forgive you. If anyone confesses their sin, 
He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. That's what John wrote later on reflecting on the life and person of Jesus. So let me say that. And then, then for those of you in here, if, you, if you're not a believer in Jesus, and maybe some of this stuff is, is new, and as I'm talking, you, you, you've thought and heard, man, yeah, I need to give my life to Jesus. I gotta follow, I gotta place my faith in Jesus so that I can experience this eternal life now on earth and then forever with him. Let me just say, it's real easy. <laughs> you just tell him. Just go to him in prayer and tell him, Jesus, I believe in you, and I want to give my life to you and experience this eternal life. And for any of us in the room, whether whether it's something you, you feel like you need to repent and work through, and we have one of our elders, some of our prayer team in the back, they would love to talk to you. Or if you just today place your faith in Jesus. And you say, hey, talking about Anise, what he's doing, I want to do that too. Listen, we got the water. It's warm. We had a heater running there for a few days. Like, it's ready to go. We would love to baptize you and celebrate with you becoming a, a part of the family of Jesus and placing your faith in Jesus. So let me, let me pray for us. And as I'm praying, we'll close our eyes. If you need to talk to someone on the prayer team, feel free to go in the back and talk to them. And then we'll stand up and we'll worship Jesus for the faith that he's given us. Jesus, thank you so much for how good you are. Thank you for your grace and your love and your mercy and that we can experience that same power that raised you from the dead here on earth. And Jesus, in in this room right now, um, there are those of us who feel like what Paul described in 1 Corinthians 4, that crushed, perplexed, hurting. But Jesus, we know that you came to make all wrong things right. And there may be situations in our lives right now. I mean, going into the holidays, Jesus, it can be really hard. Maybe we're suffering and we're reminded of grief and of loss. Maybe we're reminded of tough family relationships. Maybe we're we're reminded of what a a life that used to be or could have been and those expectations have been shattered. Jesus, I pray that in all of these things, as we come to you as a people of faith, knowing that you are good, and that you love us, and that, that God, you are a Father in heaven who wants to give good gifts to his children, that we come to you in prayer and in faith asking you to work in our lives, and I pray that you meet us in those spaces, and, and you continue to make us new and make wrong things right. Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for humbling yourself, dying for our sins, to make the way for us to be with you now on earth and then forever with you after death. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.